You're listening to New Stories, Bold Legends, stories from Sydney Lunar Festival, a podcast about Australians who celebrate Lunar New Year. From artists to brain surgeons, fashion designers to board directors. I'm Valerie Koo, and I'm the City of Sydney's curator of the Sydney Lunar Festival. I'm also an artist, writer and CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre. In this series, we discover the personalities and passions of people who meld their cultural traditions with this sunburnt country they call home. In our first episode, we meet Marina Go. Marina is chair of the West's Tigers NRL Club, chair of Ovarian Cancer Australia, a non-executive director for Energy Australia, Autosports Group, 7-Eleven, ProPAC and the Walkley Foundation. I first met Marina a lifetime ago when we were both working in women's magazines. She then went on to a hugely successful career in the media and was previously head of Hearst Australia at Bauer Media. Boss Magazine named her as one of 20 true leaders of 2016. She began her career as a journalist, has an MBA, is chair of the advisory board for the Centre for Media Transition at the University of Technology, Sydney, and author of the business book for women, Breakthrough, 20 Success Strategies for Female Leaders. Marina, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for asking me. Let's start with what does Lunar New Year mean to you? So Lunar New Year is a really special time in my family. Um, my father's Chinese and he was, he was from Hong Kong. Um, and so from the my earliest memory is it being the most important time of the year for our family. So it's the time when the family gets together. Um, we have a, a, a big meal together as a family every year and we always have Um this, you know, well, every year, I was going to say this year, is so different every year. My mm-hmm. father, it's his pride and joy. So my dad um, calls all the family together. We obviously live, ev- we don't live with them anymore. We're all adults, so we live everywhere else. Um, but we always have a, a big dinner at a Chinese restaurant, a big Chinese New Year celebration. And um, and my dad, it's his, it's his important night. He hosts it. Um, and it's more important than Christmas or New Year or anything like that in my family, always has been. And so I love it. Um, and we still, you know, we, we provide the little red parcels for the children. <laughs> so my children have grown up. My, my sons love it too. They look forward to it because they, they, you know, they have this important time where they say Happy New Year to all of their, you know, their aunties and uncles and they're handed a little red parcel and their grandparents. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's quite traditional for us. And, um, yeah, I, you know, as I said, we love it. We just, we, it's, it, it's always been an exciting time in my family. And of course the little red parcel contains money, right? <laughs> yes, it does. Yes. And so, <laughs> and so what's not my, to love? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right. And, and of course, if you're married, you don't, um, you don't get a parcel, you have to give one. And so <laughs> you have to, it's good to be single. <laughs> 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 All right. So you mentioned that your father is ethnic Chinese and from Hong Kong. Now, your mother, where is she from? So mum's from Italy. She was born mm-hmm. in Trieste and she arrived in Australia when she was five years old with her mother, um, just post-war. And do you, what, what elements of both of those cultures do you incorporate like in your everyday life? Or do you have more than one um, of more of one than the other? Yeah, I I don't know. It's hard to it's hard to say because sometimes I feel like sometimes I feel like I'm 
quite Italian. People say that to me in the fact that I hug everybody. (laughs) (laughs) I hug and cuddle people and, and, you know, treat all all of the – I've always treated all the women that I've ever worked with, like my daughters and that sort of thing. I guess Mm. that feels very Italian. Um, And from a Chinese point of view, I don't know, I always – I feel quite Chinese in my career. I'm quite, you know, determined and planned and focused and – and my da- and I guess my dad has always said to me that um, you know having a career is really important, and he always encouraged me to study. So there was never a gender bias in terms of that in my family. Um, but also, I think the you know it, we are really focused on the um, the Chinese kind of celebrations, and I think because uh, my dad's quite a dominant figure in our family, um, I think that's why he's really always kept. Uh, family close and um, and always has reminded us of Chinese history and our heritage and all that mm. kind of thing. And he talks a lot about um, all of the, you know, <laughs> anything that the Chinese have ever done that's really positive in the world. My dad will talk about <laughs> that all the time. So um, I don't know. I mean, I I don't think about it um, on a day-to-day basis, but I, but I imagine that both cultures have a lot to do with um, who I am and the way I live my life. Now, uh, you've had quite a, a long and, and really interesting and diverse career. Can you just tell listeners what you're currently doing in terms of your non-executive director roles and, and so on? Yeah. Yeah. So, I'm I'm currently um, uh, on boards and, you know, have I guess I call myself a full-time non-executive director, which which happily means I work for myself. Um, so the boards that I'm on, uh, I chair the West Tigers NRL Club, which um, I've been doing for four years and it really enjoying. Even though I'm not a, I didn't start my, my my life as a football fanatic, but obviously I've become a West Tigers fanatic. Um, I also chair Ovarian Cancer Australia, so I've been recently appointed to that role, um, which I'm really excited about because there's so much work that needs to be done um, to improve the lives of uh, women living with ovarian cancer. Um, And then I'm also a non-executive director on a number of boards, so Autosports Group, which is an ASX-listed prestige car dealership roll-up, Propac, which is a manufacturing distribution company company. and, you know, our focus is flexible packaging. Uh, and then also um, Energy Australia, which is obviously one of our very large um, energy generation retailers, um, and 7-Eleven, which probably needs no introduction because <laughs> um, there are 700 of them around the country. So I'm sure most people will have seen a 7-Eleven in their life um, in Australia. And so when you were a young girl growing up in I think the western suburbs of Sydney, did you yep. think to yourself, oh, I'd like a board career when I grow up <laughs> and be the chair of West's Tigers? I mean, what was that something you aspired to when you were younger? Did you even know what it meant when you were younger or, or when did you start thinking that's what you wanted to do? Oh, no, I, I'd never even imagined. I didn't even know I didn't even know what a board was. I'd never mm-hmm. heard of anything like that. So, uh, no, it wasn't a childhood dream. I mean, my dream as a young girl was to edit Dolly magazine, um, and and so you know, which I was fortunate to be like able to every do. And girl's dream, <laughs> like every, every girl's, girl's dream. dream. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, so that was my dream, and it was you know, I mean, I didn't realise how kind of bigger dream it was actually at the time because clearly um, you don't realise you're reading this wonderful magazine and think, oh, I'd like to be the editor. You don't you don't think. It's actually a bit of a long shot, um, but of course, because I'm a determined person and a planner, I managed to find a way there. And so, 
um, I did edit Dolly for five years. But it wasn't until uh, I'd been editing magazines for about a decade and I was promoted into a management position and I decided that I should go off and do an MBA, which I did. And it wasn't until I finished that MBA and I went along to a uh, networking group, which your laugh was called Women with MBAs, because, of course, back then <laughs> there were so few, <laughs> so few of us. Um, and at that networking event, a company director – oh, actually, she wasn't a company director at the time. So a woman called Sam Boston, who at the time was the head of people and culture for IAG, she spoke about the need for more women on boards and I and it was the first time I'd heard anything about this. And so, of course, I was very interested and I was listening to her saying, you know, we, we need to work together to try and, you know, bring more women through and then we need to work hard to get onto boards because we need to change the face of business, literally, in this country. And I thought, right, I want to be one of those women. So I then enrolled in the Australian Institute of Company Directors Board course mm. and completed that course. And then I registered with women on boards because that was the only avenue that I knew at the time. I didn't have a network of friends or colleagues or, you know, high influential CEOs. <laughs> um, and I was very fortunate that because I had registered with women on boards, uh, Netball Australia was looking for a director, their very first ever independent director, and they wanted somebody with media and marketing skills. Um, and so I was approached as – I think I was one of four women approached. They interviewed me and they chose me. Um, and so it, that really kick-started um, a fantastic and rewarding career um, in which I think from that point on, which was around 2007 – I've, I just have never not been on a board since then. So, you know, um, I've, I've served on a number of charity boards in order to gain experience. Um, and charity boards are great for networking because um, there are a lot of, um, um, you know, I was going to say full-time board directors, but um, professional directors who are on commercial boards also sit on um, charity boards. And so you do get to actually meet people through that avenue. Um, so, it, you know, I, I really enjoyed it and I did that alongside my executive career for, you know, 10 years actually before I decided that I would step off, um, cross my fingers <laughs> mm. uh, and back myself into this, this new career. So from the sounds of it, if you could, if you divided your career path into chunks, there was the period that you were in magazines, going up the editorial ladder of magazines, there was a period that you were in senior management in mm-hmm. in various roles, mainly yep. in the media, and then there's your board career. So if yes. we take each of those chunks separately, at, when you were in each one or, you know, at the beginning of each one, did you have a – what kind of strategy did you have in place in order for you to move forward with each of those – or was there not one? Oh, no, no, there was one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess there were strategies within that within those chunks. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I spent I spent about a, a decade, um, maybe a little bit more actually, in editing magazines and um, and and so actually maybe fifteen years, you know, in, in terms of a kind of an editorial journalism editor career, mm. and 
what I did was with every, every time I was appointed to a new role, um, you know, obviously getting to do that role, and, and probably within 12 months I'd start to think about what I'd want to do next. Mm. And not because I wanted to leave immediately but because I wanted to, I wanted to uh, ensure that I was driving the next role and not uh, not it being left to chance or uh, you know I'm I'm not I, I don't like surprises right so mm. <laughs> um, if you're a person who doesn't like surprises then you do plan things and so um, you know a class I'll give you an example so when I was mm. the editor of Dolly it was my dream job it was all mm. I wanted to do but I knew that I wouldn't be able to do it forever because uh, you know you do need to um, go to concerts and you need to be available the job I had to go and party right <laughs> and, and you know that as you as you get older and 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 particularly if you have children which you know I, I'd hope to do at some point in my life um, you you know I know that it's not a it's not a great job for someone um, who has children and so I started to think about what I wanted to do next and I decided that I wanted to be the editor of Elle magazine next mm-hmm. and that uh, and you know and so I, I told my boss and um, and it, it became clear that that wasn't the next opportunity for me in their eyes within the company. They wanted me to, to go off and edit something else, but I, w- I wanted to edit L. So I then left and I took other jobs that kind of led me to L. And so I eventually was offered the editorship, editorship of L, mm-hmm. but I had two jobs in between. But when I took those two jobs, each time I thought, will this job get me closer to the job I really want? Mm-hmm. And and I still make those. De- I still actually make those decisions. And so, you know, even when I'm thinking about my board portfolio, I mean, there, you know, I'm still thinking about down the line what would my ideal board portfolio look like. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, some of those, um, I guess, some of those areas I'm, I'm not in at the moment. And you know, obviously, media is a would you know it'd be crazy if I had a board career and I, I didn't actually um, have the opportunity to serve on a media board at some point because of my experience in media. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I don't have a media board at the moment. Um, and so I'm thinking, well, down the line, it, it's not an urgent thing. I actually, you know, I would like to gain more experience, but at some point I'd like to do that. Um, and, you know, I'd like to chair a commercial board at some point and, and, you know, what do I need to do in order to do that? Well, you know, chairing Chairing ovarian cancer and chairing um, the West Tigers actually will probably lead me to um, develop the skill sets that I need in order to one day chair a commercial board. So, yeah, you know, so people often say to me, oh, you know, you're you're crazy with all the things that you take on, but Hmm. I take them on deliberately. And Hmm. because, you know, ovarian cancer and West Tigers, I don't get paid to do that. And, um, but what I do get out of it is other other skills, and it's a, it's a little bit like free education for me. Mm. So all I'm all I'm paying with is my time and my knowledge, which I'm happy to give to uh, to these organisations that I feel I can add value to. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I'm learning so much and I'm gaining so much from these organisations as well, and and that's that's the way I look at it. And I think that, as I said to you, it's deliberate. Um, and if I get offered an opportunity that I don't think is going to add to my future goal, mm. um, then I have no problem saying no. And so there's been a lot of discussion in the media, in boardrooms, everywhere, about the number of women on boards or the 
the lack of number of the lack of yeah the lack boards. of percentages yes <laughs> so I have a few questions around that and one is firstly you've mentioned West Tigers and it's an ex- apart from boardrooms being extremely male dominated football is extremely mm. male dominated was that something that was when you first started uh the daunting for you or or and what has been your experience um during the last four years um, well, look, it wasn't daunting for me at all, actually, because when I first joined the West Tigers board happily, um, there was another female director who was appointed at exactly the same time. Um, and I think at least having two on a on a board um, where the majority is still male, um, it still makes things a little bit easier. And and primarily because where it where it actually becomes annoying actually is when mm-hmm. when you're talking about um female you know female issues so things like growing the female fan base engaging engaging women you know f- female the female game that sort of thing mm-hmm. um there is a tendency for men on the board to look at the t- look at the women and and it becomes our problem <laughs> you know or, or you know this is <laughs> and they kind of shut down where whereas it's a it's a whole of it's a whole of organization issue it's not just a it's not just a female issue i mean if you have more female fans or in commercial world more female consumers then it's good for business so it's, everybody should care about it um and so i i have tried to make sure that um the men have been included and you know and some of the men have become very interested um but i guess the thing about the west tigers is that um the because I was you know the, they chose me to join their board I didn't impose myself on them um, mm. and I was approached about joining the board um, they were very open to obviously having women on their board um, and I've never had an issue because of my gender in my own club mm. that's the first thing I've really you know I've never felt that the men on my board are very respectful I mean the other the other female director is no longer on the board um, and so it, we we back down to just one but. Um, they're very respectful of me, and you know I've got I've got eight men on my board, um, and it's a really well functioning board. And as as um, you know, we announced I think last week, or certainly our CEO did, um, we have made profit for the first time ever. And so you know everything is going very well. So I really enjoy that. The broader game is different. I think within there are stakeholders within the game, within within media, within other clubs, um, who really are not as open to um, women and, um, you know, and I think I'm seen as a bit of a pain in the ass, to be perfectly frank. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, that has never bothered me. I've never, ever been bothered by any of that. So, you know, it's um, it's been an interesting experience and taught me a lot, really. I bet it's been an interesting experience. So in terms of um, the the discussion you hear about quotas, not just for women, but quotas in terms of diversity on boards what are your thoughts on those two issues so i'm a big i'm a big supporter of quotas i think um without quotas uh it doesn't happen and 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 primarily because uh often things have to change structurally for something to change and so i'll give you an example like you know my my football club west tigers Mm. um there are two independent directors I'm one of them. Then there's a, a another guy uh, or a guy who is the chair of our audit risk committee, and then we have seven directors who are appointed by their clubs. Um, 
so if if quotas were enforced on us, we'd actually have to change the way that um, the that you know directors are appointed to our board because we wouldn't be able to achieve um, anything like balance with the way that that people are currently appointed. Um, you know, certainly the two independent directors could both be women, um, but I can't force the you know the way that um, members are appointed to the our shareholders who then appoint people from their board to us and generally and basically they're all men on their boards and so mm -hmm. um, I think through business and through sport and through government I think quotas are the only way that you're ever going to achieve anything like balance um, unless you have I mean look there's a couple of um, really really good men who want balance um, and you know the chair of Energy Australia Graham Bradley is one of those men and so We've never had a quota enforced on us, but we've got 50% uh, female representation on our Energy Australia board, and that was because it was important to the board and and our CEO. Um, but certainly the chairman, yeah, he's a very strong influence, and um, and it's something he truly believes in. So it can happen without a quota, but it's really unusual, mm. um, and so that's why I, I believe in it. And you know. I think, look, things have stalled. Let's let's face it, things have stalled in the commercial world in particular. Um, things are moving further ahead in government, but they've they've imposed a forty percent target, which which is the same thing as a quota. Mm -hmm. And so that's obviously on quotas in terms of uh, gender balance. Uh, but does do you think the same thing in terms of quotas on, you know, people from diverse cultural backgrounds? Yes. Well, I yeah, I think so. Absolutely. There's certainly there certainly needs to be uh, a greater focus and understanding of the reasons why you need diverse diverse thinking because that's really what it is, you know. So when we talk about having women joining a board or having people from different cultural backgrounds or having people from different economic backgrounds or different regional geographic backgrounds, um, I the, what what we're really talking about is people who think differently. And and I feel like I feel like I bring that to my boards. And so the fact that I'm a woman is actually probably the least diverse thing about me, to be perfectly frank. Mm -hmm. um, I come from a very different background to most of the people on a lot of the boards that I'm on. You know, I went to a public school. A lot of them went to private schools. I grew up in the western suburbs. A lot of them grew up in, you know, the North Shore, eastern suburbs, which is traditional heartland ground for, um, you know, the – I guess the professions that generally have made up boards in the past, and that's lawyers and bankers and accountants. Um, and so I know that I think differently to a lot of the people on the board, which I think is really fantastic, and so you want that. Um, so some of that comes through my my diverse background in terms of my cultural heritage mm. um, and certainly 7-Eleven. So 7-Eleven is a really classic example of, a, of an organisation that understands its customer. And so our customer is really our direct first customer is our franchisees, um, and so we have a mix of franchisees that generally um, are primarily from you know Indian, Pakistani, Chinese backgrounds, mm. and up until a couple of years ago, it was a very Caucasian board, primarily male Caucasian, um, and so now we have a board of seven. I I have um, you know, obviously Asian. Italian cultural background and then we also have another director on our board who has an Indian background and it's made a world of difference because we're able to speak on to the cultural issues that our customers 
are, are facing or, you know, or, or just the way that they, um, when we communicate with them, what some of their responses might actually mean. Because, you know, in different cultures, respect looks different. You know, the way that mm. people, um, even in even in asking a question, you know, I, I've, I once put it to um, our one, one of our um, retail team at 7-Eleven and we're talking about communicating with some of our franchisees. And I was saying, you know, they're probably nodding when you're saying that, aren't they? And they're saying yes. And I said, well, it doesn't mean they're going to do it though. Because a not nodding is respect for you mm. <laughs> doesn't mean they're going to do it, and I know that because of my father's cultural background that that's yep. that's Asian behaviour. Um, but you know, and, and you know, I think over time the organisation comes to learn these things. But it really does help if there are people thinking about the customer base, and so that's the reason you need it. It's more about the customer base. It's not just because it's the right thing to do. It's actually it's actually good for business. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, boards understand that. And that's, I think, when when you can point out that it's actually very good for business to have diverse thinking um, on your board because it's good for customers, then you then you start to see change. Mm. Um, and I think it's just getting through to people that that's what it is. But as I said, you know, I certainly my two biggest boards, there's a very strong understanding of diversity, um, mm. you know, um, and I I feel very comfortable on all of my boards being a diverse woman on these boards that I'm you know that that my, I'm listened to um, and there there is an acknowledgement that um, my views are different and and therefore welcome. Mm-hmm. With your cultural background, your ethnicity, um, uh, has has that impacted your professional career in any way? Not just your board career, but even in your early career, impacted it in a negative way. Or? I, well, either, <laughs> either, either way. way. I mean, um, yeah, and maybe I it just, hasn't. I don't know. I'd... I don't. You know what? I don't. I don't think so. Um, the only, I think, it's, if anything, it's positive from a customer point of view. So, you know, when I was editor of Dolly, I, I often mm. received letters from young girls who would say to me, "You're the only role model." That I have, or the only person that you know is, I guess, in any way public for me that looks that looks even remotely like me. So, mm. generally, young young Asian um, women, and and I still I still get that. I st- you know I had that through my editing career, so I, I then got it with women through L, um, mm. and I still sometimes have women. Uh, you know, I speak a lot at um, Asian leadership events, mm-hmm. um, and I'm really, you know, I, I think it's really important to do that. I'm very connected to um, networks that have Asian leadership events, and so uh, very often the young women in particular will come up to me and say, "Oh, you know, thank you. I, I thought that you know my heritage or the way I look would be an obstacle, but I think you've proven that it that that it isn't." And I've just said to them, "Well, it doesn't have to be. I think you just, you know." I, but let's not forget that sometimes it is, and I don't want you to. I don't want to give you a false hope, right? Because we know that mm-hmm. in some in some areas it might be. But um, mm-hmm. but I, but I haven't I haven't experienced it personally. Mm. Um, and as I said to you, I think in fact it's been a positive in that I feel like I've helped um, I've helped I've helped impact positively the lives of customers um, of organisations that I've worked for, and I think that still is true. I think that mm. remains the case. 
um, from a board point of view um, and from a visibility point of view. I mean, I get invited to speak at a lot of events now and I know, I know it's because, yes, I'm a woman, but also I'm a culturally diverse woman. And I think mm. that's a positive thing because people are starting to realise that it's not okay to have, you know, all white panels or all male mm. panels. And so I, I probably tick a couple of boxes for people. for those young women who are saying you know I thought that maybe my cultural heritage might be a bit of a hindrance what do you say to them in terms of what strategies that they can have for themselves to well not think that way and to not allow it to be a hindrance yeah look I think some of it is um some of it's confidence so some of it is Mm. you know um just making sure that you feel confident in your capability and um, and and I, I guess that's the only thing you can do I mean you you need to you need to develop networks that are beyond you know just your friends who are of the same cultural background as well so you do actually need to make sure that you're not you're not doing the opposite in reverse and just because that can happen so mm-hmm. you know a lot of a lot of the young women that I speak to all of the all of their networks are kind of are Asian networks. And I say to them, mm. you know, you need to also break out of that because there is – you're not going to get to know the people who could help you or who you could benefit actually because you're going to add value to these people if you join them. You're not going to – they're not going to know who you are if you if you don't make an effort to go and network with these people. So sometimes it's, you know, I, oh, they wouldn't they wouldn't want to know me, you know, I'm not going to get that because um, – you know, they're, they're all Caucasian and they're all, you know, they're all men. Mm. Um, but you do actually need to have the courage to go and develop networks with those people um, because that's what I've done. I mean, my, my whole life, that's what I've done. I've just, I've just forged networks with people. And I think probably um, the, the best, the best thing I've done for my career, I think is network mm. um, and, and finding out who to network with because people are not um, are not as focused on your cultural heritage as you might think. They're much yeah. more focused on the value you can add through your capability um, and you know and your life experience, which is why mm-hmm. your life experience can't just be a life experience, you know, of people like me. It's a, you know it's exactly the same thing. It doesn't matter which culture you come from. If you just hang out with people like you, then you're not ever going to jump you know almost kind of cross over um mm. which which we need to do to have um a multicultural multi-dimensional uh, business world mm. i think that uh, i'd like to just dig one level deeper because i think listeners will be really interested because you mentioned that they do whether they're male or female um they do need to forge those networks with people with other people um Mm. but on a practical level what does that look like how do they then contact person x what do they say because they're probably listening to this thinking i understand that intellectually but what do i actually do to network with that person to connect with that person so there are so i think first of all joining associations um that that have events. So, you know, I think attending events is really important. So mm. going to business events, um, so if you, you know, if you are an accountant and you're joining, you join your association, they will have an event where um, where you, you know that there will be 
people who are very senior in organisations mm. who are accountants mm. at those events. And I, what I always have done, I still do this, is I check to see who's going to be there um, and not because I don't care about anybody else but because I want to make sure that I introduce myself to that person. And so mm. if I, you know, in my world now, for example, you know, I, I attend a lot of company director events mm. um, and I make sure that, so I make sure that I accept lunches to small to small events that get me invited to bigger events. And so, mm. you know, for example, people like PwC invite me to um, lunches where they're kind of educational lunches where they they teach you about, um, you know, what to look out for for cybercrime and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and then then I'm on their list and they invited me to bigger things. And and at those larger events are all of the kind of leading chairman and chair or chairman chairs chairwomen um, of companies. And I work out who I haven't met and who I'd like to meet. And I and I introduce myself at that event. And, you know, often um, I ask for a card and sometimes they'll give you a card. And um, and I and I always say, um, look, I would love to have the opportunity to have a coffee with you at some point to understand how you got to be where you are. And you find that people like telling you how they got to be where they are. Mm. Um, and so it's mainly been successful. Not always. Sometimes sometimes people won't do that. And I look at that and I think, okay, well, that's they don't have to and I'm not going to take it personally. You know, maybe yeah. they're busy, maybe they don't like helping people. That's fine. <laughs> um but the problem is a lot of people take it personally. And so I've spoken to, because I mentor a lot of young women, or not even young women, but women coming through who want to be directors. Mm-hmm. And um, and women often will take it personally. So they've had one seeming rejection in that mm-hmm. they've, you know, they've asked for a coffee and that person hasn't responded. And so they're too scared to ask for another one. And I have to say to them, look, it's a numbers game. You know, you have to be out there. You've got to meet a lot of people. You ask to have a lot of coffee and you might get a couple you might ask 20 people to have coffee with you, two might, but those two people could actually help you. Mm-hmm. So you've got to keep going um, if you're really serious about it. And the thing about it too is if you're not, then maybe then maybe it isn't for you anyway because the further up the tree you get in terms of business, the, the more thick-skinned you have to be, the more rough mm-hmm. and tumble it is. It gets competitive up there and, you've, you know, if you – if at the first um, – chance that somebody is going to be competitive with you or not show interest in you you know you you retreat then you probably need to do some more work on your um on your person in terms of your confidence and your and and your feeling of of capability in order to improve your confidence um as a starting point so it does it does teach people a lot about um where they are in terms of their aspiration once, once you get them networking, I always, you know, in, whenever I mentor women, mm. first thing I do is say to them, between now and our next meeting, I want you to have gone to an event. Mm. So you need to find an event to go to and then I want you to have introduced yourself to somebody who, or the most senior person at that event and I want you to tell me about it. And so I find that they do because they're, t- <laughs> they're probably more scared to not to tell me they haven't done it. <laughs> Um, but I, I just remember doing. I, had, I mentored this young woman who, who wanted. She was telling me that she had been involved in a lot of um, activity with her boss, where she gave the ideas and she put presentations together. And then her boss was the one that got to present it. She wasn't in the room at the presentation. The boss obviously got all the credit, and she didn't feel like she was visible to anyone. So I said to her, right, I want you to, um, I want you to ask if you could be in that meeting next time so when you put all that together I want you to ask your boss 
if she minds, if you sit in on that meeting, even if you sit in quietly as an observer, but from your own career development, it would be really great for you to do that. You'd love to see the reaction to to your work. And to and 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 you know, to the credit of her boss, she said yes. And so then when she sat in, they then started asking her questions, even though she was just an observer in the background, they started asking her questions about the presentation. And then after that she got invited always. Mm-hmm. And so you know, so sometimes it's about having the courage to speak up for yourself and to put yourself forward. And, you know, and look, uh, knowing, of course, that there will be times when the boss will say, no, it's inappropriate, you can't come. Um, but to keep asking and then to to try and find a way to get invited to um, other meetings. You know, you, you need to look for ways to get yourself into a meeting that you feel like you need to be in to improve your visibility or to find a way to see, to you know, to interact even in a social environment where there are more senior people. Mm. Um, so it's just it's about ensuring that you're visible, and I think we always have to take responsibility for our own visibility. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and with the um, all of the five thousand million things that you do, what yeah. do you do <laughs> for fun? What do you do to chill out and you know? Um, when you're not <laughs> attending board meetings and mentoring young women? women. Well, I, I read. I love reading. So um, mm. I'm reading uh, Anne Summers' book, Alive and Unfettered, yeah. um, which is just fabulous. Um, but, yeah, I, I read for pleasure. And um, I feel that also in my, in my spare time, um, and I do actually have, you know, a decent amount of spare time these days, uh, I – I love spending time with my sons, and so they're both they're both at the start of their careers. Really, you know, mm-hmm. my youngest son has just graduated from university, and my oldest one is um, he's you know he's been out for a few years, and he's he, I think he's changing um, track in terms of where he wants to go with his career, and uh, and so which is really exciting what he wants to do next. And so we're you know I spend a lot of time talking to them about that, and. Um, and, and, you know, I guess helping advise them on how they should approach it. So uh, I, I really enjoy that. Um, mm. But also I love planning trips. I love planning holidays. <laughs> so I actually think that in, in another life I might have been a um, travel travel agent because I love – I do all the detailed planning for trips. Really? And I love it. And so, yeah, and, and I spend a lot of time researching and um, I'm researching at the moment a trip to North America that I'm hoping um, we might do in the next year or so. But, um, you know, just looking at all the little places to stay and, you know, and then I organise all the accommodation, you know, the accommodation and, and the transfers between locations and everything. I love it. Oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> and um, finally, what are you most looking forward to in the Year of the Pig? Um, I'm looking forward to, um, I think, a really strong business year. So I feel like, um, I feel like, you know, certainly in a business sense, my boards are at a, a point where we've we've done a lot of the hard yards. I mean, that doesn't mean that we there's not more to do because um, we live in a world of disruption right now. But I feel, I feel like it's going. I just feel like it's going to be a positive year. I have this feeling in my bones, um, mm-hmm. in terms of business. Um, but also, I think the the thing I'm most looking forward to is my children um, and this next stage of their career for them because I just I remember when I was you know I'd first I finished university and I thought oh I get to do it now I get to go Mm -hmm. and enjoy my you know I get to 
you know, forge this career that I'd hoped. So I was really enthusiastic and and I can see that in my children and they've, you know, I so I can't wait to see what happens for them this year. Um, and that for me is probably more important than anything else. It's just, you know, seeing that come to life for them um, because they're both pursuing really exciting careers and, um, yeah, just as reminded me of me when I was, you know, 21. <laughs> mm. Well, on that note, I hope you have a very happy and prosperous year of the pig. <laughs> Thank you, Valerie. I hope you do too. I hope you enjoyed this chat with Marina. One of the traditions of Lunar New Year that Marina spoke about is the practice of giving red packets. These are known as ang bao or hong bao, which translated means red packet. And when you get them, it's pretty cool because there's money inside. The tradition is for children to be given red packets by their elders to pass on a year of good fortune and blessings. In some areas, it's not just the kids who benefit. Married couples are meant to give red packets to unmarried people. Generally, when you're given a red packet, you would say something like Happy New Year or the more traditional Gong Si Fa Tai or Gong He Fa Choi if you're Chinese. There are a couple of different legends about how red packets came about. One is about a demon who scared children while they slept on New Year's Eve, and parents would stay up all night to try and protect their kids. One New Year's Eve, a child was given eight coins to play with. His parents hoped that this would keep him awake, and the coins were wrapped in red paper, and eventually he unwrapped the coins and fell asleep. These coins were supposedly the eight immortals in disguise, and when the demon appeared and came to the child, beams of light came out of the red packet, and the demon was scared off and ran away. Another legend about the origin of the red packets is about a monster called Nien, which would terrorise and destroy entire villages. The legend goes that parents would give children money that night so that they'd have something they could use to bribe the evil monster. Whatever story you subscribe to, the modern result is that kids and even many unmarried adults love the tradition of receiving red packets during Lunar New Year. Thanks for listening to New Stories, Bold Legends, stories from Sydney Lunar Festival. My name's Valerie Koo, and you can connect with me at ValerieKoo, that's K-H-O-O dot com. To find out more about the City of Sydney's Sydney Lunar Festival, go to sydneylunarfestival.com or to find out more about the people featured in this podcast and any of the links I've just mentioned, just go to newstories.net.au.